0: from
1: PRX. This is Studio 360's American Icons. I'm Kurt Anderson. I'm standing on a main street in the middle of America at the dawn of the 20th century. It's early morning. There are shopkeepers in pinstripes and straw boaters. They're smiling as they open up their shops. Jewel box storefronts sparkle in the sunshine. This is Main Street, USA. It's not just some ye old shopping mall. It's a dream version of an American small town. It's perfect, like an old movie come to life. And I'm the star. Then I turn around, and up the street, I see a mob of real people. People in jeans and T-shirts and mouse ears. And at the stroke of
2: ten... <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Disneyland.
1: Okay, here we go. Hello there. This is Devon Viola.
3: I've been with the park for seven years now.
1: She's a tour guide.
3: Disneyland lives on almost as a living storybook to Walt's life and his dreams.
1: Walt Disney tried to recreate his happiest childhood memories right here.
3: This is Town Square on Main Street USA, but as you can see, it is the perfect idealized small town. Not as it is in the real world, but seen through the lens of a memory, through the eyes of a child.
4: Cinderella! I saw Cinderella!
3: Yeah. let's go see Cinderella.
1: the Pan! Okay.
3: So, welcome to Fantasyland. Here we can fly with Peter Pan to Neverland, ride with Cinderella in her pumpkin coach. In fact, anything our heart desires, because here... Hopes and dreams are all that matter.
1: There's Tomorrowland, where you can ride through space with Buzz Lightyear. To
5: infinity and
1: beyond. Adventureland, Frontierland, lands within land.
2: Devil's ready for some adventure!
1: (laughs) And a hundred bucks gets you all of it for a day.
3: Honestly, like every day, I do anything to come here. Every single day, every single second. I just love being here so much.
1: Izzy Kleiman is 11 years old. She lives about a half hour away, and she's had an annual pass to the park since she was five. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and she's still finding new stuff.
3: Oh, my gosh.
1: Like in the waiting line for the Snow White ride.
3: There's this giant window. Sometimes it opens, and the evil queen is inside. Oh, look, look, look! It's doing it now! Oh, my God, that's so creepy.
1: That's not the only creepy thing around here. Sometimes it seems like the whole world, the the real world, has been shaped by Disney. And this is its capital.
3: Right above the firehouse here on Main Street resides Walt's little private oasis where he could entertain celebrity guests, um, or if he just really wanted a time to relax and have his favorite snack, which was a grilled cheese. (laughs) He was able to create all of that right here inside of that firehouse. Now, cast members who were working here during the time of Walt being here they remember looking up at this window and they would see a light on in the firehouse and that's how they would know that Walt was home. And so we keep that lamp lit 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, in memory of Walt Disney, almost as if he never left.
2: To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land.
1: Disneyland in California and Walt Disney World in Florida are the subjects of today's episode of Studio 360's American Icons.
2: Disneyland is dedicated to the
6: ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America, with the hope
2: that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world.
1: Five generations of Americans have now grown up with Walt Disney shaping our imaginations, from Tangle back to Beauty and the Beast, all the way back to the very first princess movie, Snow White.
4: He will carry me away to his castle where we will live happily ever after.
1: Disney took those fairy tales, mixed them up with some historical facts, a dream of the future, and created an alternate universe. Not just a place to go for a fantasy vacation, but a prototype for Walt's perfect world.
2: Disneyland, a place for people to be happy.
1: That was 1955, and now 100 million people every year go to one of the parks around the world in Pursuit of Happiness, according to Disney. For Americans, it's the Great Pilgrimage.
6: When my friend David came back from Disneyland, I had not been to Disneyland, he came back from Disneyland. And we sat in his room, and he unfolded the map.
1: That's Tom Hanks, who played Walt in the movie Saving Mr. Banks. He was indoctrinated
6: as a kid in the 1960s. It's like he was a pilgrim that had come back from Jerusalem, and he was—he made the ah—the oh, the, the veil, the walk of tears. First, you go down the Jungle Cruise Line, and the back of the Jungle Cruise Line is right next to the stores of Main Street, USA. How do they do it is astounding. Have you been back? I go back. Well, I had kids. Now I've been back 800 million times and and find myself searching... A quiet little bench on Tom Sawyer's Island, you know, under the shade while the kids can run around.
1: I'm fascinated by how places are made, why buildings and towns and neighborhoods look the way they do. And in this sense, Disneyland is mind-blowing. It's one of the most designed environments I've ever set foot in to the point that this theme park feels a lot more specific and real than the world I just left behind.
7: This is the the grand entrance. Walt wanted to make sure that you had kind of a symbol of leaving your worries behind and going through this door, this portal, and entering a land um, where we can reassure you that you're safe and things are fun and you can play.
1: To design the park, Walt Disney hired not just architects but artists and engineers. He called them Imagineers. Kim Irvine is one of them. She's Disneyland's art director and a second generation Disney employee. Both her parents worked for Walt.
7: The street actually narrows slightly as it goes up to the hub and then you see the walkway in the hub narrows even more.
1: The hub being right there in front of the castle? Exactly.
7: And if you see, it also rises, the paving also rises up slightly up to the Walt and Mickey statue there, which gives the castle this kind of glorious um, platform to sit on, and everything leads to it. And the castle is one of the things that Walt used to call a weenie. He was very fond of hot dogs. (laughs) And a weenie is a thing that beckons you to come to it.
1: And Imagineers want you to feel as if you're inside a movie. The long shot of Cinderella's castle, the pan across the storefronts on Main Street USA, the super close-ups of a door handle or a sign in a window. And as you glide through Walt's movie, the scenes change in a gentle cross dissolve.
7: If you think about going from the very Victorian Carnation Café over there, or the Jolly Holiday Café, right next to it is Adventureland. So what a switch, but in a cross dissolve you can kind of blend those together by changing the paving under your feet, changing the type of railing from wrought iron to bamboo, changing the palette of plants very gradually from a tababouya tree or an olive or something that would be very common in a main street. Uh, area into some kind of tropical tree, like a coeracea that has the same color blooms and the same type leaf. But it's definitely really,
1: there is no detail Imagine too small for Disney people to care about.
7: But Walt was very strong about making sure that everything changed, again, so there wasn't contradictions. And he said, you'll know that you've gone someplace different just from the feeling under your feet of really? the paving.
1: <laughs> the bane of Kim Irvine's professional life is what she calls contradictions.
7: And that's when you see something that doesn't fit in that story. It can be something small, but if you saw a Star Tours character from Star Wars walking through our turn of the century Main Street, it would totally throw the story. It would take you out of that, that story that we're trying to tell.
1: Now, there's a cast member in some kind of Renaissance outfit, but she's wearing dark glasses. Isn't that a contradiction?
7: It is, and she shouldn't be. And if you weren't here, I'd go over and tell her so. <laughs>
1: Next stop, New Orleans Square.
7: I love New Orleans, but you know, it, there's there's parts of it that you wouldn't want to recreate here. Well, this
5: I
1: was thinking. So this, this this is the least funkiest, yeah. uh, cleanest. Uh, uh, least eccentric New yes. Orleans I've ever seen. Yes,
7: it's kind of idealized. It's cleaned up, but we have jazz bands that play here and, you know, wonderful shops that are very reminiscent of what you'd find on some of those little streets in New Orleans. And the facades are all copied exactly from different buildings in New Orleans. You can find them in books. Really? There's that building. But again, yeah. at, at
1: 8 tenth size or whatever they are? Yeah, smaller yeah.
7: scale. Mm-hmm.
1: According to the Disney thinking, slightly smaller buildings feel friendlier. And around the corner is the Haunted Mansion, my absolute favorite attraction when I first came here. It was the 70s, I was 18, and at the time my perceptions may have been altered.
0: The spirits will materialize only if you remain safely seated with
8: your hands
7: on. What's great about these ride vehicles, those were thought through really carefully, too. Um, so the vehicle actually turns you the way it, that, it wants you to focus, you know. We have complete control over what you look at.
8: They pretend to
1: For Kim Irvine, the Haunted Mansion is personal. Her late mother worked in the model shop where the ride was developed and ended up playing one of the characters. An image of her face appears in a crystal ball. And as you leave the ride, you can hear her voice.
3: Be sure to bring your death certificate.
7: It's fun to hear her little voice when I walk by in the morning a lot of times when the park's quiet. I can hear her in there all these years later. There she is. And when I would bring my kids when they were little, we'd ride the ride and going up the umprap, and there she'd be, hurry back, and I'd go, wave at Grandma!
1: <laughs> as carefully designed as everything is, the haunted mansion could be a lot scarier. And that's Disney's M.O., in Walt's dream, there's always a happy ending. There's only
2: a happy ending. You know, in America, I think, we really desperately want things to be nice. We don't want to scare the wits out of little children at an entertaining facility. I mean, you know, they will they'll get enough of the nasty side of the American experience as they grow older. I mean, there's no question about that.
1: Richard Schickel is a movie critic and the author of The Disney Version. The book came out in 1968, and it was the first big
2: mainstream critique of Disney and the empire he'd built. The really most subversive thing you can say about Disney is, in the end, it trivializes experience of all kinds. You go on to the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. The Pirates are presented rapaciously— you know, they're after the girls in the towns that they
1: raid. Right, the the scene where there are these captured women being auctioned off by the
2: pirates.
0: And now you bilge rats, do I hear six?
2: Shift your cargo, dearie. Show them your larboard side. We watch the ready.
3: watch the
2: There are aspects of Disney that are like that. I mean, they tiptoe up to the, the meat of the issue, whatever that issue is, sexual or violence or what have you. But they get out of it with a laugh and a joke, and you splash onward through the ride. This is
1: exactly what we mean when we say something's been disney Richard Schickel
2: actually coined that term. People want that pseudo-experience. And you have a massive institution... Devoted essentially to taking the scare, the thrill, the danger out of experience. It's an entirely pseudo-experience. And that kind of pseudo-experience
1: extends to every corner of the parks. Even American history gets the full Disney treatment.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, we welcome you to our dramatization of Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln.
1: Here's Abraham Lincoln played by a robot, what Disney calls audio animatronics.
6: Let us have faith that right makes right.
2: And in that faith, let us to the end dare to do our duty as we understand it.
1: It's a mashup of Lincoln's speeches that never quite mentioned slavery or the Civil War. And at Walt Disney World in Florida, robot Benjamin Franklin, robot Mark Twain, and other great American robots act out scenes from our proud history, even though not every piece of that history is so proud. I asked Imagineer Gary Landrum about that.
9: I think there is a rhythm to the story that is told in The American Adventure. I mean, it was a challenging story to tell because there are high points, there are low points. There's slavery. That that, that, um, certainly... Hard times are addressed within the show itself. Uh, There's lots of techniques in which to handle that. Sometimes there might be a dramatic song in which helps to evoke the motion, makes the point, but softens the story point um, for us, and then transitions us onto another story point. But within the story, we show that optimistic perspective that we always do come out of adversity better, stronger than we were before. That is the spirit of America. Um, That is the main theme of the show.
2: I think one thing about Disney is is, its intention is putting you to sleep. It's putting you into a dream, and it's not about waking you from a dream. And the case of, I think, an artist is to try and wake yourself. Paul McCarthy
1: is a major visual artist who riffs on Disney in a lot of his work. I think it's a
2: dream of resistance. Your work is? Part of it is a resistance. To? To the sleep.
1: McCarthy wants to reclaim all the scary, twisted stuff found in the original European fairy tales, the grim versions, before Disney got a hold of them.
2: I think there's something interesting about the metaphor of Disneyland as this sort of sealed-in culture, or this sealed-in world, this reality, this fantasy reality, really.
1: But it's a fantasy so vivid and potent, even he admits that
2: Disney can be intoxicating. You have a drudgery, there's a drudgery, and things are tough, but you plan on going to Disneyland in the summer to get away. You know, I always thought that, Florida, uh, Disneyland in Florida was really like going to heaven.
1: And when you get to heaven, who will you meet at the gates?
10: Oh my, boy, do you look beautiful today. I love your dress. May I see a princess twirl?
1: The Citizens of Disney. They're coming up next in American Icons. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson, and we'll be back, assuming I survive, in just a minute.
10: know why? You're listening to Studio 360 with Kurt Anderson.
1: And in today's episode of American Icons, we're visiting the Disney theme parks in Florida and California. Walt said that he created Disneyland so he'd have a clean, wholesome amusement park where he could take his kids. In doing so, he tapped into these awestruck childhood moments that maintain an incredibly strong grip on us into adulthood.
10: I was sitting in the chair, and I had the costume on already. She was doing my makeup. And when they put the wig on, that was the final touch when I looked in the mirror. And I saw myself become Snow White. It was a truly magical feeling. Everything that I loved growing up and just the pureness and sweetness of this little character, I became her. Why? Boy, do you look beautiful today. My name is Rachel Hankel, and I played the character Snow White at Walt Disney World for two years. I love your dress. May I see a princess twirl? The stage is is all around, so I might be kneeled down to the child in front of me and looking and talking to them. Or someone might be looking from afar, taking pictures because they couldn't stand in line to see you. Everyone's watching, so you have to be on at all times. I would always kiss the little boys on the forehead the way Snow White would kiss Dopey, and it would leave the red lips so when they went around to see other characters they would often say, oh I see that you've seen Snow White today, they would know by her red lips. One thing that I I love to do that we weren't necessarily told to do or trained to do is when I would give them a hug and I would whisper something into their ear that I know only they could hear, mom and dad couldn't hear in the background, and very little things like, you are so special, so that they know they're loved and they're valued, and hopefully they remember Snow White telling them that.
1: I've got a confession to make. I never took my kids to Disneyland or Disney World when they were young. And they've never quite forgiven me or their mom for depriving them of that trip. For the record, it was my wife's veto. Because it probably would have gone something like this.
3: My name is Marley and I'm seven. I'm at the Booty Booty Boutique and I'm getting my hair done.
1: No fantasy is more powerful for most girls of a certain age than the Disney princess. Inside the castle at the Bibbidi-Bobbidi Boutique, they can get their hair done, their nails, makeup, the works.
11: Let's talk about your tiara. This is your very own princess tiara, Your Majesty.
10: One. No, we don't need a wand.
11: I'm Abby Boylston, and we're from Hilton Head Island, South Carolina.
1: Glenn Boylston.
11: It's our daughter's sixth birthday. She is going to be Princess Jasmine.
4: Jasmine, she's really nice to people, and she cares.
11: Last year, when all of the princesses came out, I mean, I have a picture of her that is just priceless. You know, because she's like, it's really Ariel. You know, yeah. it's really Aurora. And I and mean,
1: just total...
11: A believer. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, she, the the, she drank the Kool-Aid. It's
1: really amazing. And
11: she's starting to get more thoughtful about it.
1: I picked her up from school, and she was just quiet, and I said, so how was school today? And she goes, is Cinderella alive? And I said, well, you know, she lived at a time when there were horses and carriages, and then it got real quiet, and she said, so she's dead? And I'm like, well, no, no, that's not really what I said, you know?
8: And then she said, well, Belle lived at a time of horses and carriages, and she said, is she dead too? And I was like, okay, where do you go with this?
4: Well, at my age, you know that they're not real, but... Just the whole experience of it makes it seem so real that you, like, go along with it and play along.
1: Annabelle Fabian is nine. If the Disney parks have an ideal customer, it's
4: her. The school science mathy part of you is being like, oh, that's not real. You have to, you have to stay strong. It's not real. But, like, another part of your mind, it's like, I guess, the dream maker part and the fantasy part. And some of your heart, actually, is telling you, oh, but it seems so real. And it has everything that you could imagine. It has stores that make you feel like a princess or a prince or like a hero. Everything that you could imagine is there. It's like living in a fantasy book.
1: And the fantasy is so total that some of the adults freak out a little, too.
4: My mom, she was, like, always smiling, and it was like she was almost, like, starstruck. My mom's favorite character is Tigger.
6: ti double g
4: <laughs> So we had to go get his autograph for both her and me.
1: Maybe more for her mom.
4: Yeah, and she wanted to get a hug from him, so we got a picture of her hugging him. But she was like, you have to be in the picture, too, or else it'll look weird. And I was like, okay.
6: They're bouncy, bouncy, flouncy, bouncy, fun, 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 fun. But the most wonderful thing about Tiggers is I'm the only one.
1: Disney. Not just for children anymore. Here's something that might surprise you. About a third of the 51 million annual visitors to Walt Disney World are adults who go there without children. You can have a fairy tale wedding at Disney, complete with a princess gown and an appearance by Mickey. And while it's definitely against the rules, guests have been known to scatter the ashes of loved ones there. Corey Doctorow is a science fiction writer and co-editor of Boing Boing. He's been obsessed with Disney his whole life. It
8: started when he was six. My dad said, well, what about this haunted mansion thing? And my mom said, well, no no no, I'm sure Corey is too young to go on the Haunted Mansion. At which point going on the Haunted Mansion became a matter of, you know, religious significance for me. The Haunted Mansion ride
1: was fun, but its gift shop was
8: epic. I bought a whole ton of stuff. I bought the big glow-in-the-dark skull, the half-size glow-in-the-dark skull, the keychain glow-in-the-dark skull, the LP, the chilling, thrilling sounds of the haunted house, the ghost that slid down an invisible thread, fright mask, oh, what else? A mummy fright mask, the limited Haunted Mansion leather jackets, a set of teacups for the 50th anniversary of Disneyland. I made out with a girl at a party the first time wearing my glow-in-the-dark Haunted Mansion t-shirt. He did not grow out of it. My wife and I, we got married, and my tux was a Haunted Mansion butler's uniform, and our wedding march was the Haunted Mansion theme played by a a jazz ensemble that we booked out for the evening. Corey Doctorow isn't being
1: ironic in his Disney love. He's genuinely passionate. He set one of his novels, Down and Out
8: in the Magic Kingdom,
1: in Disney World of the 22nd century.
8: I think the genius of Disneyland is that he built a thing That financially shouldn't have worked, that almost didn't work, and that still to this day, I think, is chock-a-block with things that have no good business reason to be there, but have good artistic reason to be there. Um, And this is the deliciousness of the Disney park in a nutshell, is its tension, tension between commerce and art, tension between the adult and the, the childlike. Those tensions are what keep the tightrope tight.
1: Another of those tensions is between what you can see and what's hidden away backstage. Talk to hardcore Disney fans and you'll hear about all these amazing things back there. The pneumatic tubes that remove garbage directly from the garbage cans in Florida's Magic Kingdom. The basketball court hidden under the Matterhorn at Disneyland. But ask a Disney employee about that stuff, you get nothing. Disney legend and lead
9: creative of Imagineering for many years, Marty Scalar, I think said it best. This is Imagineer Gary Landrum. He said, everyone wants to know how the magician does his tricks. But once you learn how, often the magic is lost. At Imagineering, we often do things that appear to be magic. I believe we do things that really are magic and defy explanation. But there are times when we see little value in the guest knowing which is which. Uh, and what are the real magic things you do? There is little value in the audience knowing which is which. Because there, there, I think there is a, not just a business reason, our business is in entertainment and storytelling. And so as good storytellers, we owe the
12: audience not to rob them of the emotional impact. They didn't want anyone to see the magic. You know, the magic had to happen spontaneously and instantaneously. So for you to get to work, even let's say in the Magic Kingdom, there's a labyrinth of tunnels and staircases. And they're how you get from one place to another without people in the park seeing you get there. Finally, I got a few secrets out of somebody. Michael Clowers. I worked for Walt Disney World as a performer and as a kid at the kingdom for seven and a half years. That means five shows a day, every day, in front of the
1: castle, singing and dancing in Florida's heat and humidity.
12: The tunnels are where we get our clothes, where we warm up, where we clock in, where we eat, where we take our breaks. And for me, as a young gay adult, it was like gay high school. It was a place that was diverse and fun and crude a bit and um, just really carefree because all of the things that you had to be upstairs— You did not have to be in the tunnels. Working at Disney, for the first time, it was as if I had gone to work someplace where there were a huge group of people who were just like me. We all kind of were trying to get away, you know, move to a better self. So when you were on stage singing when you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. You meant it. After shows, I would normally go to the cafeteria. And I went to the Coke machine, and I looked over and saw my friend Rodney Chester. And he was sitting with this blonde guy that I had not seen in the tunnels before. I got Rodney's attention, and I said, who is that?
8: Hi, I'm Clay Chaffin, and I played Prince Charming off and on for about
12: three and a half years. We met, and he flashed his Prince Charming smile. Michael's so good at performing the way he danced, how much he loved it, his enthusiasm. So I definitely recognized his face. We really came from very similar backgrounds. We both grew up in the South. We both grew up in Southern Baptist households. Um, we both wanted something else. Michael asked me to come to a party, and I did. And We have been together for the last 25 years. The biggest you know, piece of magic, I think, is that Michael and I found each other. And now you see why he's Prince Charming. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Michael Clowers is a choreographer and director, and Clay Chaffin is a product designer. They live in Orlando.
6: Coming up... Interior, Walt and Roy. Interior airplane, flying. Flying on business. Flying on important business.
1: Walt Disney dreams big,
6: remaking the world big. What business? None of your business. Secret business.
1: That's next in Studio 360's American Icons, from Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Studio
3: 360.
6: I'm Walt Disney. This is a screenplay I wrote. It's about me. Fade in. Fade in on me. Walt. Fade in on Walt. Fade in on Walt. Walt. Close on Walt.
12: I'm Lucas Nath. I'm a playwright in New York City.
1: Lucas was a little obsessed by Disney as a kid in the 80s and 90s, growing up in Orlando. And as a playwright, now he's written about Walt Disney.
12: The play is called... A public reading of an unproduced screenplay about the death of Walt Disney. Um, It's a play about his attempt to make a perfect
1: city. And that's our subject in today's episode of Studio 360's American Icons Disneyland and Disney World.
6: Walt is quick and smart and sharp and great and rich and loved and richer than he's ever been and more loved than he's ever been. And he's doing great and he can have anything he wants.
12: The play is also kind of um, Walt Disney's life, but reread through King Lear a story about a man who is confronting the fact that. He's not going to be around for much longer. But there's this thing he made that will live past him, this corporation. Lucas imagined
1: conversations between Walt and his older brother Roy, the business guy at the Disney company.
6: Walt says to Roy, time to work, okay? Because now I'm going to make a city, an actual A city okay because I've made a theme park and that's like a city not really want to make a city like I've made a theme park an actual city a place where people live and sleep and work and eat and could be best thing I've ever done difficult
12: it kind of shows you the degree to which art and design and images can really control and manipulate people Uh, in the world of Disney the artist is God
1: Walt Disney has been gone for half a century now, but he still fascinates us with his combination of intense sweetness and a will to world domination. Tom Hanks starred as Walt in Saving Mr. Banks.
10: When does anybody get to go to Disneyland
6: with Walt Disney himself?
1: And Philip Glass wrote an opera called The Perfect American about Walt's final days. And that's the same territory as the play by Lucas Nath. The play is set in 1966. Walt Disney is sick with cancer, but
6: he's dreaming up a new project, his greatest project. It's important work, moved into the real world now, changing how the world works, how the world does what it does, how the world sees, how the world. I mean, you can't change the world and have a small life at the same time. You can't. You're not operating on that scale. This is bigger scale. Have to be one of the most important people who ever lived. What's the point unless you're one of the most important people who ever lived? What's the point? As he saw his end approaching,
1: Walt Disney dreamed of reinventing the way we live.
2: We call it Epcot. Spelled E-P-C-O-T. Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. Epcot will be a planned environment demonstrating to the world... What American communities can accomplish through proper control of planning and design.
1: There would be corporate offices, technology labs, homes for 20,000 people, all connected by mass transit,
2: monorail. But most important, this entire 50 acres of city streets and buildings will be completely enclosed. In this climate-controlled environment, shoppers and theater-goers and people just out for a stroll will enjoy ideal weather conditions, protected day and night from rain, heat and cold, and humidity.
1: And we'll all live happily ever after under climate-controlled domes. But Walt died in 1966, just before the project broke ground. And what the Disney company built was not Walt's amazing city of the future. They took his really visionary idea... And Disneyfied it.
11: Vengeance
2: at Epcot. See, touch, and play with the products of tomorrow.
1: Epcot became just one of half a dozen amusement parks in a giant realm called Walt Disney World. It is not a real city. It has no citizens. But Richard Fogelsong, who teaches political science at Rollins College outside Orlando, says Disney World is an urban environment like no other place in America.
6: You know, it all works. It's uh, well laid out. It's, everything's coordinated one thing with the other. It makes people happy, you know, and on and on and on. And there may be a um, message there that is a little hard to swallow that uh, American cities arguably don't work very well because they're built under the fragmenting conditions of capitalism and democracy. But Disney World is like historic Paris and London in the sense that it's built under the auspices of an entity, the Disney company in this case, that owns everything and controls everything. And one could say an enlightened despot.
2: Well, that's right.
1: Enlightened and uh, aesthetically minded. In order to bypass all that messy democracy stuff, the Disney company pulled off an astounding political maneuver. It convinced the state of Florida to create a special district in which Disney would have almost total control.
6: I call the area a Vatican with mouse ears. And
1: just as they rewrote the laws of Florida, Disney also tried to get around the laws of nature. The novelist Carl Hyacin is still peeved about how Disney disnified the old Florida where he grew up.
5: Florida lakes are tannic lakes, which means they're kind of brown. They sleech off the trees. There's perfectly great lakes to swim in or do whatever in, but they're not a, a, an alpine lake. Well, that wasn't good enough for them, so they scraped and scoured the bottoms of the lake so that all the water looks blue to people, even though it's not a natural blue at all, because nature's never good enough for Disney. They've always got to improve on nature, which is why, of course, all of us take delight when something natural happens in something they can't control, because there is a sort of perverse joy in watching. You know,
1: why you fantasized
5: about a lion escaping. Oh, well, yes, but nobody would be killed. But I just like the idea, (laughs) right? The terror. Cinderella's Castle, or, or, you know, it's pretty easy pickings up there because the the tourists don't tend to move that fast. I'm telling you, they're not quick on their feet.
1: Hyacinth's book, Team Rodent, has made him the spiritual leader of Disney haters everywhere. Strangely, he's still allowed onto the property. That was my
5: dream, you know, was to get banned. And that hasn't happened yet. No, no, they wouldn't do it because uh, a friend of mine had been banned. He right, had, when he
1: got in a fight with some fight. and they
5: And they, their fake police force took a fake mugshot of Polaroids <laughs> and posted it in the kiosk. I thought that would be my dream. It would get me off the hook for the rest of my parenting and grandparenting days. And they,
1: Grandpa, yeah, Grandpa yeah, um, Carl, please. No,
5: no, I already told my son. I said, uh-uh, this is your deal now. You get to do this.
1: But as it turned out, the Disney company never totally gave up on Walt's idea of building the perfect city, of bringing its signature brand of super sweet niceness into the real world, a full-time live-in Disney experience. On a corner of their giant holdings in Florida, in 1993, the company founded a brand new town. So take a left. Instead of a futurie Epcot place though, what they built is more like Disneyland's Main Street USA. With cute little shops, charming houses, green town squares. And even in the rain, it's movie set perfect.
10: This looks like Mary Poppins.
1: Yeah, this is lovely. This is we're on a square on Mulberry Avenue with attached white townhouses built around a square. That's pretty lovely. My producer Jenny and I drove all around the town of Celebration, Florida, population 7,427. Oh, this must
11: be the school.
1: Yes, this is Celebration School on our right, K
6: through 8.
11: I remember my kids were little. They were probably like four and five at the time. We were sitting on the carpet in the living room and... People walked up to the door and they knocked, and I was like, Sunday morning, okay, and I opened the door, and I'm like, can I help you? And they're like, well, yeah, we just wanted to come in and see your house.
1: This is Susan Bona, who moved here in the early 90s. She owns the Celebration Town Tavern.
11: And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> you know, no, I said, we live here. Well, yeah, but don't you, like, show people? I'm like, no, the model homes, and, you know, I kind of explained where they were, but that's what the perception was right. with anybody who that came to this town. That you were a cast member. Absolutely. We were paid to walk our dogs. Yeah. That's what I was told once. Were well, you paid to walk your dog? Uh, no, it just has to go to the really? bathroom. Really? It's like Sturbridge <laughs> Village. <or laughs> yeah, or yeah. Yes,
1: But it wasn't just visitors who assumed celebration was part of Disney World. Susan Bonus says that lots of people moved here to live the Disney dream 24-7.
11: People moved here and they maybe weren't happy in their lives in other places, and they thought, Well, I'm going to Disney World because you know, I know Tinkerbell's gonna sprinkle that pixie dust and we're gonna have a happy family now. Well, yeah, not so much. They
1: Gates, really did want a fantasy life. I
11: believe so. Yeah. And I kept saying, I was the one that would say, Guys, it's real world. Like, I don't want the monorail coming in, it's already just five minutes down the road. I don't know what is are thinking. Let's go down an alley.
1: And here are all the garages back in the alley between the streets, which is brilliant And how every suburb should
6: be built.
10: Having grown up in a suburb with garages at the back, this is like the nicest version of an alley I've ever seen. Yeah. No garbage cans out. No, there's one garbage can
1: out. It's true. There's something weird about those alleys. I was talking with the influential architect and town planner Andres Duany about Celebration, and he immediately put his finger on it. The alley
0: is where things happen. That's where you open the garage door, drag out the couch. That's where your kid can actually make mud with a hose. That's where your husband can take a motorcycle apart and not put it back together and so forth. You know, I believe that the alley is what allows the front to be neat. But
1: this is exactly where Celebration becomes too Disney, too perfect, almost un-American. The front is exceedingly neat, and so are the alleys.
0: And so it's a bit of a pressure cooker, I think. You know, they're all landscaped and swept and flowers. I I just find that disgusting.
1: Well, and what's interesting, of course, is that now having been to Disneyland and Disney World and been backstage as well as in the parks, what they've done there in celebration is illuminate backstage.
0: Yeah, yeah. Hey, so you did get to go to the backstage? Yeah, yeah. I have also, you know, uh, I think people imagine it to be all sorts of machinery and, you know, Jules Verne kind of stuff. If only. Actually, they keep us away from it because it's banal.
1: Yeah, exactly. Didn't
0: it look like a high school basement?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's nothing.
0: I think they prefer the myth (laughs) that something really incredible is happening down there. That's probably true. (laughs) Yeah.
5: My name is Jim Siegel, last name spelled S-I-E-G-E-L. Great. And how long have you lived in Celebration?
1: Lived here since two... Jim Siegel is a retired Ford executive. He moved down here from Detroit. Jim, his wife, Marita, and their adult daughter, Julie, are Disney fans. Like, fanatical.
13: We were down here 33 times before we ever moved in. You kept track of the number. You know? yes, Julie's very good about that. Even though I was getting straight A's and I was supposed to be a, a salutatorian or valedictorian, I had the highest absence record in my high school's history because we came down to Disney so much.
1: They came to Celebration because they couldn't be close enough to Disney World. And although Disney sold downtown Celebration to another developer in 2004, the town still has theme park in its DNA. Like at Christmas time when downtown is a blizzard of snow.
13: The snow. As OAP, it's a combination of snow and soap, which they actually do use in the parks at Disney. Don't stick your tongue out, listeners, if you ever come to Celebration and and enjoy our snope because it's soap. It, it just is foamy and fun, and they play Christmas music, and that's when we have our ice skating rink out. That's obviously not real ice. Santa's house is there, and um, you can do carriage rides with horses.
1: But even living in celebration isn't Disney enough for Julie and Marita. There's a kind of happy that they feel at the park, only there,
13: nowhere else. When you go into Disney, you're so taken by the magic and the positive experience that you build these endorphins. And we'd always come out just so happy. It it is, it's one of the happiest places on earth. After
1: she graduated college, Julie even worked in the Magic Kingdom.
13: So what I did at Disney was uh, I got to help out the characters. I got to help out mostly Mickey and Minnie, Pinocchio, Pooh and Piglet.
1: Helped out is a God. cast member euphemism. Mushu, she will not say that she played the characters.
13: Um, I also helped Max, who's Goofy's son, Uncle Scrooge.
1: Donald Duck.
13: No, never Donald.
1: No. no must have been hard, tough, just physically tough, I would think.
13: Physically tough, yes, and physically demanding. Actually, I left because uh, helping out with the characters was taking quite a toll on my body. And I also needed to get what my mom called a big girl job (laughs) and um, start making some better money. So I regretfully left, and I... I I want to go back. It's time for me to go back. So I haven't had an annual pass now for several years, and I really am going through withdrawals. It's really hard.
1: What is it that you feel at Disney that you don't feel anywhere else?
13: I feel like I am, I can't, it's so hard to put into words, but I feel like I'm someone special, even though there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of other people around me. I am someone special. And I matter because that's what the Disney cast members' job is, is to make me matter.
1: This doesn't sound like somebody talking about an amusement park. Julie is describing one of our most basic human needs. We want to matter. This is Disney's genius, recreating at every turn the sense you had as a child, if you were lucky, that the world was made for you. We're a country founded on the pursuit of happiness, and Disney has turned that pursuit into a kind of religion with its own rituals and idols and hymns. So no wonder Main Street USA, those picture-perfect recreations of a small town lack one cornerstone of every real community in America. There's no church. That's because the Disney parks themselves are our holy lambs. And this is their prayer.
6: When you wish upon a star
13: Make
2: no difference who you are Anything Desires will come
6: to you.
1: And Walt Disney was its prophet.
6: Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America, with the hope that it will be a source of joy
2: and inspiration to all the world. He had that simple faith that if you believed in something, and if you really wanted to do it, you could do it. Richard Schickel, author of the Disney version. You know, there's something in that middle westernness of the drive and the perfectionism, the unwillingness to say no. That I think is pompous statement coming up. I think it's the true spirit of America. It's what we are at our best and our worst. Really, I admire much of what he accomplished. I'm appalled by much of what he accomplished. It'll go on forever.
1: There are now a dozen Disney parks around the world. The newest is Disney Shanghai. This hour of American Icons was produced by Jenny Lawton, edited by David Krasnow, and mixed by John Delore. The excerpts from Lucas Nath's play were performed by Larry Pine and Frank Wood. Special thanks to Alex Scalafant and to KCRW's Matt Holtzman for his work on location at Disneyland. Since we first aired this hour in 2013, Richard Schickel has died.
13: Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Great ideas brought to life. And by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks.
0: PRI Public Radio International.
1: Next time on Studio 360, I asked New York Times theater critic Jesse Green and playwright Paul
8: Rudnick about the state of gay theater. I mean, of course, using the phrase gay theater or gay plays has, right. is a problem in itself. Right. And often redundant. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, perhaps in your case. <laughs> That's next time on Studio 360.
12: Because Broadway has never been broader. It's not just for gays anymore.